0: They don't, you know, their energy's really poor. They're having anxiety. They're having insomnia, um, all of these symptoms. And, they, and maybe they're having some breast tenderness. They, they don't make the connection. And if you're not educated in the field, how would you make the connection that your gut changes a phenomenal amount in perimenopause and menopause? The, as your estrogen and progesterone levels decline, you lose that beautiful mucus lining in your intestinal tract and your cortisol goes up and um, you start to develop this leaky gut. So you get this puffiness, this bloating, maybe you get a muffin top or your muffin top turns into a cake top and you've done nothing different with your diet or your exercise. And in fact, most people are exercising harder. They start cutting back calories. You know, They're trying to take control of the situation. So I love to do um, the GI map because it gives me a real window into
1: what's happening. Hi, I'm Dr. Morgan Nolte, geriatric physical therapist, weight loss coach, and passionate disease prevention expert. I used to struggle with emotional eating, sugar cravings, and consistency, then I learned how to lose the mental and physical weight once and for all with a low insulin lifestyle. Each week on the Reshape Your Health podcast, you'll learn simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies to help you do the same. If you're ready to create a body and life you love, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey everyone. Welcome back to the reshape your health podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Nolte. Today we have a special guest, Esther Blum. She's a registered dietitian and an integrative dietitian. I think that we're going to learn a lot from her today, specifically about gut health and hormone health. Those are going to be the topics that we dive deep into today. She loves helping women around and after menopause really optimize their hormone health, sustainably lose weight and reduce their need for medications down the road. Esther, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Morgan. Yeah. Let's start with your story. Just tell us who you are, where you're from, um, how you got into this field. So, um, I am a mom.
0: I have a 14 year old son. I have a rescue dog. Who's like part Boston Terrier part Beagle. Um, I have been married, we're coming up on 18 years now, which is great. And I, I live in a small town about 50 miles North of New York city. I was in New York city a long time. Um, and it, and just absolutely love it. So, um, how I got into this was, it was really in my blood. My grandfather was the tonsil King of Brooklyn, Harry Blum. He was, an amazing ears, nose, and throat surgeon. He trained my grandmother who was originally a dietician. She was at Bellevue hospital and she went to work for him after his first wife died, just kind of running the house. And he trained her to be the anesthesiologist. So, and they ended up getting married and, uh, she put the ether mask over my face while he took out my tonsils. And not only is that crazy enough, but it was in, they had a four story house in Brooklyn and on the ground floor, they had um, a consulting room, um, a treatment room and an operating room with 12 bed pediatric recovery. And he had nurses on staff and, Um, It was pretty incredible. My brother still has the operating room sign like above his office. So um, my father was a dermatologist, my mother was a nurse. So science was just all around me. I grew up watching my dad and my grandfather make house calls and be very compassionate,
1: kind healers, you know, their entire career. Mm-hmm. So how'd you get into the field of diet, you know, dietetics, uh, your registered dietitian. I love having registered dietitians on the show. Cause I'm not, I'm a geriatric physical therapist, kind of obsessed with nutrition, but <laughs> <laughs> it's so important. You can't, you cannot deny that. So tell us about how you've you know, found that field and found that passion to help people heal with food.
0: So I really loved medicine, but I did not want to be a doctor that, you know, the hospital's a jealous mistress and I knew the time. It and, is, yeah. Right? And I knew the time commitment involved in being a physician and physics really wasn't my thing. So I was like, that's gonna be hard for me to get into med school. Um, so nutrition is pre-med minus all the physics. I still took physics, but less so, and then less, um, chemistry as well. But aside from that, it's, the same mm-hmm. curriculum wise. So I did a bachelor's, I worked at Boston city hospital for a year. Then I went to NYU and got my master's, um, also in clinical nutrition and worked, continued to work in hospitals for another four or five years at Beth Israel, uh, in New York city, which is no longer there, which is crazy. And so in that time, um, you know, I was working in the cardiology units and I had 10 minutes to give someone a lifetime of diet yeah. instruction. Before yep. they were discharged. I mean, they're like getting dressed, heading out the door. And I'm like, here's the paper on, you know, all the foods you can eat. So, and there was no continuity of care. So I really wanted to get in at a preventative level. So I went and got certified in functional medicine and um, worked. left the hospital, worked for a functional medicine doctor, and then opened up my own practice after that and started writing books. So it really, I never looked back, but I'm, I'm so grateful I have the hospital experience because- just the clinical knowledge you get there is
1: unparalleled. great. I'm with you though. I think when you're in traditional medicine, like Western medicine, so often they're not getting care until they're already injured or, or ill. And at least in my field as a geriatric PT, sometimes I feel like it's too little too late and we can use our time and resources so much more effectively and have such a greater impact on their quality of life. If we can get them earlier, you know, around the perimenopause, especially in menopause phase, you know, if you really take control of your health in your forties, fifties, and sixties, you're going to have a much better retirement than if you don't. So I think that that was really cool to learn more about you and learn that we are passionate about that preventative side. What I think is cool about your practice. And what I wanted to talk about today were the kinds of tests that you use to assess someone's gut health and to assess someone's hormone health. I don't use these tests. And so I wanted to learn more about them from you today. And I wanted you to share your expertise with the audience about, um, let's start with the GI test. So Mm -hmm. how do you test GI health, um, both clinically like from the test itself and then symptoms that you would think, Oh, this is probably a GI problem. So Mm. let's start there.
0: Well, a lot of people who come to me don't realize they're having GI problems. They come to me in perimenopause and or full-blown menopause, either they're smack in the middle, they're at the beginning, the middle, or, you know, are are way past it. I treat women up through their seventies who are still having hot flashes by the way, so can still treat them. Yes. Um, So most people don't realize, but they come to me um, you know, with a lot of bloating, all of a sudden they don't tolerate gluten and dairy anymore. Um, they don't, you know, their energy is really poor. They're having anxiety. They're having insomnia. Um, all of these symptoms, and they, and maybe they're having some breast tenderness. They they don't make the connection. And if you're not educated in the field, how would you make the connection that? your gut changes a phenomenal amount in perimenopause and menopause. The, as your estrogen and progesterone levels decline, you lose that beautiful mucus lining in your intestinal tract and your cortisol goes up and um, you start to develop this leaky gut. So you get this puffiness, this bloating, maybe you get a muffin top or your muffin top turns into a cake top and you've done nothing different with your diet or your exercise. And in fact, most people are exercising harder. They start cutting back calories. You know, they're trying to take control of the situation. So I love to do um, the GI map because it gives me a real window into what's happening. A, it looks at uh, rules out for pathogens and parasites. So a lot of people have H. pylori. Now H. pylori is fairly ubiquitous in the American population and it won't necessarily cause symptoms or problems. A lot of people can live with it and be asymptomatic, but if you pair that with declining estrogen and progesterone you know, all of a sudden you can start getting reflux and heartburn all the time. So um, if, and it causes a chain of dysbiosis, it's like a domino effect where some of your good bacteria actually start to get really, really high to overcompensate for, you know, having dysbiosis, but then it can also cause really low levels of beneficial bacteria too. So you kind of look at the numbers relative to H. pylori, um, so I, I, do look for pathogens, treatments, uh, um, pathogens and parasites and treat for it. I've picked up everything from like Giardia to E. coli to, you know, traveler's diarrhea, just, just while treating someone for perimenopause, I just happen to pick those things up. Can also tell me if your yeast levels are high, but what I love about the test too, is it looks at an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase, which tells me it paints a picture of your overall inflammation, but it can also tell me if you're recycling estrogen in your gut. That's interesting. Fascinating, right? Yeah. So, um, if someone is going to go on or is a candidate for hormone replacement therapy, right. Because so during menopause, your estrogen levels are, are surging. You may get uh, surges throughout, but once your levels decline, they really decline. So even if your levels are low, if you go on hormone replacement and you continue to recycle it in your gut, that's going to be very unhealthy for your body and not, you will feel unwell also. So you want to make sure that your pathways are good and you're eliminating and you're pooping and you're getting enough fiber every day to move the estrogen through, whether your beta-glucuronidase is high or not. But I also love the GI map because it tests for a leaky gut it tests for um, your, it really looks at your digestive fire and will tell me a lot about if you're making enough hydrochloric acid, which those levels tend to decline when cortisol levels are high or, you know, after the age of 30, 40, you really see levels decline. Um, and it's funny, just sidebar recently, I um, just didn't have time for a week to reorder my supplements, I let them lapse. And I didn't take my hydrochloric acid for a week and I would, it was the first time in my life. I was like, wow, I really noticed a difference without it. Like I, I had a couple reflux events and was constipated. And I was like, this has never happened to me before in my life. I've never been constipated. So it was fascinating. I was like, okay, this is me in perimenopause, like hardcore,
1: and yeah, really I think that's talk about the leaky gut thing because we haven't mm. talked about that on the podcast. I think it's yeah. kind of an arbitrary a phrase. So, what exactly is leaky gut? And will you again just really punch on the reduced mucosal lining mm-hmm. that women experience during perimenopause and menopause, and how yes. that might lead to the leaky gut? Yeah, connection.
0: So we have what's called the microbiome, which is the really the universe, the bacterial universe that populates our gut it's in a healthy person, you know, it, it weighs about three to four pounds, you have three to four pounds of bacteria in your small intestine. Wow. I mean, how freaking cool is that? And that, you know, turns on everything from genes that express illness to genes that express longevity to, um, you know, it, it the gut is really the, the micro, uh, the control center of our gut. It, is so important for everyday functions like elimination, detoxification, but also the production of beneficial bacteria uh, that correlate with brain health. We know that deficiencies of certain good bacteria can lead to anxiety, can lead to depression, can lead to ADD or ADHD. So we are learning so much about gut health right now. So then we, in. menopause. And just as women, we have the estrobolome, which is kind of the estrogen mediated bacteria in our gut. And so as our estrogen levels decline, we can naturally lose levels of good, healthy bacteria. So it's really important that you support gut health. And what happens is when you, when that bacterial balance changes and the composition of the inside of your intestinal wall changes, The intestinal wall can become inflamed or thin out and become semi-permeable. So I don't know if you remember your eighth grade biology classes where you learned about semi-permeable membranes and things going back and forth across the cell wall, right? So um, that happens in our intestinal tract when the lining thins out. Undigested food particles. These are at a microscopic level. You're not passing a head of broccoli back and forth across your intestinal wall, but at a microscopic level, you know, uh, you you don't want food actually and food molecules passing back and forth across the intestinal wall. So you become very inflamed. You become bloated. You can get brain fog. You can feel sluggish, fatigue, um, and normally the intestinal wall has these tight gap junctions that they're like puzzle pieces that snap together. And when the gut is leaky, they separate, they become very loosey goosey. So my goal is to in treating people is a, I get, I weed and reseed right? I get rid of the pathogens that don't belong there and then replenish the good bacteria. Not everyone has pathogens or bugs or worms or parasites. Some people just have, really low levels of good bacteria and they have really low levels of hydrochloric acid. When your levels of hydrochloric acid are low, that is the perfect breeding ground for parasites, for bacteria that don't belong there because your stomach and for yeast also and SIBO because your stomach is supposed to be a cauldron of fire, right? And so without enough digestive fire, things go awry, right? You you get bacterial overgrowth, but you also can get reflux because you need hydrochloric acid and you need zinc to keep that pyloric sphincter closed. So once it starts flapping open and people start taking prylosec and all these H2 blockers, you're just, you're worsening the situation of bacterial overgrowth. You can worsen SIBO symptoms. You can worsen yeast overgrowth. You know, all sorts of things go awry. So I try to, in time, rebuild digestive fire and put healing nutrients in there like aloe and slippery elm and marshmallow root and glutamine and really get people rebalanced. And then They start eliminating every day. They start pooping every day. They start, uh, you know, the brain fog clears up. The mood improves. Um, Sleep is better. The bloating goes down. So there is, it's totally possible to get resolution in these symptoms. And I have people come to me with chronic diarrhea and bloating and severe irritable bowel. And then I have the other end of the spectrum of people who are severely constipated and don't poop more than once or twice a week. So we get everyone, you know, really, really balanced. And I even see people with like torturous colons who are told, oh, well, you're going to be really constipated and you have to take Miralax and you've got to take laxatives. And it's not true. You can actually, it shouldn't, the structural issue shouldn't be too much of a barrier. Um, You know, if your nutrients are on par, you have digestive fire and, you know, there are motility agents. You can take Ginger is a great motility agent. Um, so there's a lot
1: you can do to facilitate just regular bowel movements. So backing up a little bit, the GI map is a test that you've mentioned a couple of times. So will you tell people a little bit more about what they could experience or expect if they decide to take the GI map test? And then if they really need to do that in conjunction with a practitioner so that they can best interpret the data.
0: Well, so you should only, I mean, the only way you can get the test is through a practitioner. It's not Mm -hmm. direct to consumer. So, um, but what you can expect is that you are going to get a test kit with a French fry tray that you need to poop in and you (laughs) scoop out samples. There's a tiny little shovel in the cap and uh, of of a little twist jar and you scoop out different samples Uh, and play with your poop a little and say, no, it's interesting. And you shake it all up, you send it to the lab and then your practitioner, um, you know, will circle back with you, read the results. I personally, the test is complicated. Uh, I've looked at a couple hundred, but I do not consider myself an expert on it. It takes years to really understand the test. So I work with a doctor at the lab to help me interpret it, just being transparent, um, and again, we go through just the patterns of dysbiosis. We look at, and I teach this to my own clients too, you know, I explain to them the patterns of this dysbiosis, if they're missing any nutrients, if they're recycling estrogen in the gut, um, and then we go through their diet right? What is the best diet to heal a leaky gut? Do you, you know, are you showing back methane producing bacteria that could be connected to SIBO? Is a FODMAP diet more appropriate for you? Um, I have a couple of people I've seen in my practice who have extraordinarily limited diets. They just, they don't tolerate anything without severe stomach pain, they can't look at a vegetable and maybe they tolerate some fruit and a little protein. Like I'm thinking of my client, Rachel, who ate like chicken breast and like canned peaches. And that was like kind of her diet for years. Wow. And now she's eats vegetables. She lost all this weight. She also had like an unspecified autoimmune condition that was not diagnosed, but she was on heavy, heavy medications like Plaquenil. And, you know, we got her eating all these foods and she was able to really decrease her meds. So um you know what you can expect is really starting off with a prescriptive diet of what are the best foods for you eventually you should be able to progress like nobody should be on a limited diet forever but maybe you want to start off with cooked vegetables and then as you build up your digestion you know move to raw you want to also think about by the way like chewing your food um most people don't realize digestion starts in the mouth not in the stomach And that you have to be in a parasympathetic state when you start eating, which means you're not as sympathetic as fight or flight. So parasympathetic is when you're in that nice, relaxed place, like you take some deep breaths. I mean, there's something to be said for St. Grace before a meal or just meditating or showing gratitude for the meal you're about to have and just being in a great mindset. A lot of us are eating in a fight or flight state. We're eating at our desks. We're eating in front of the computer and the phone. And please, I'm guilty as charged too. We all do it. Or dashboard dining, right? I Like the moms oh, were, right? Did, shuttling their kids to a million sporting events. So we do it, but it's really important to slow down, chew your food, put your fork down between bites, just try and make meals joyful and relaxed. And I would say, if you're like super stressed, try and delay eating because you're not going to digest it well. You're just going to be super bloated all the time. Um, and the same goes for toilet training. I do a lot of toilet training with my people, which means you get, if you need a squatty potty that can really help you structure. And I'm sure you know, this is a PT, right? It helps you structurally align and be in a more of a simulates like a squat position, which is how people used to poop before there were toilets and can travel to many European countries and see there's still Turkish toilets where you put your feet on either side of a hole and, and crouch down. So, um, you know, that is a wonderful position to be in to enable your bowel movements to pass out easily. So you want to also try and poop the same time every day. You know, like I think guys are really good at this. They'll sit in, in the toilet for like half an hour reading or on their phones. Like they're comfortable with the idea. Women are like, I got to go. I've it's like- so true. Right? Yes, that is so true. so true. So fortunately, again, it, it you can do it. it. It can take about a year, uh, but you can do it. And there, there are good peptides that you can also do if nothing else seems to work that kind of facilitate bowel movements. But you want to try and sit on the toilet every single day and condition your body. Like this is the time when I need to have a bowel movement. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's really it's there's such a gut brain connection. I mean, they're two are intertwined. And then yes, I do use supplements to treat uh, and kill off any gut bugs that don't belong there. And then treatments, you know, to to heal and reseal up that leaky gut. So treatment takes on average three to six months. It's a slow process. Sometimes more. Um, I often retest if I've done uh, H. pylori treatment or treatment for pathogens, I will then retest, uh, I'll do two months of treatment, a month off, and then a retest. And sometimes I need to treat again because some gut bugs are um, biofilm producers and biofilms are kind of these balloons. These, imagine them as little balloons outside you know, a bacteria and you have to pop the balloon those, those balloons keep them real safe and protected inside your gut wall. So sometimes after treatment, more will come out that have kind of been hiding under the cell walls, under the um, intestinal wall. So some come out. So sometimes people are like, I did all this treatment and it's still not gone. Sometimes it's worse. And then, um, so we'll have to do a couple rounds of treatment. So in other people, it kills off and succeeds the first time. So I like to manage people and say, let's just see how your body does. And then Lord forbid, if it's still not going away, then we really need to do some digging and check for lime and mold and other,
1: you know, real environmental disruptors for the gut too. I think that you're a great resource to have. Like I have a couple members who have irritable bowel syndrome, you know, and if you're not really trained in this subject, you, you go and you don't have these tools at your disposal you know, and I think that it's important, like we could dig in, well, how do you treat this? How do you treat this? And it's kind of a moot point, unless you know that you have that. So if you could give general advice for what foods are great for gut bacteria, Mm -hmm. and then what foods are harmful for the beneficial gut bacteria, or can lead to that inflammation, you know, kind of general principles here, because we know that each person is individual, right? Bio-individuality is, is key. Cynthia Thurlow says, so start with that general advice on gut health. What can people do to start? Uh, everyone likes to, you know, try to fix it on their own. So what would you recommend for people to try to fix it on their own before maybe they come to you for more specialized testing and treatment?
0: Yeah. I always like to add foods in that naturally displace other foods. So certainly, you know, probiotic foods are great. Um, you know, kimchi, sauerkraut, kefir, Kombucha. Those are all foods with a nice amount of probiotics. Fiber is really important, like flax and chia seeds. Think of fiber as just a nice intestinal broom, right? That just sweeps out, sloughs off any dead cells, which by the way, like a third of your poop is just dead bacteria.
1: I mean, how cool is that, right? (laughs) I don't know if I'd be a good poop practitioner.
0: (laughs) Oh, I, am like, let me just roll up my sleeves and get on in there. So, um, so, so fiber is really great and fiber binds excess estrogen. So if you're excess estrogen dominant, it's a great way to, to bind for men and women, men can be estrogen dominant too. Um, and then you want to make sure you're getting plenty of protein, good quality protein, grass fed meats, um, poultry, eggs, wild Alaskan salmon, you know, wild caught, fish, seafood, which is an anti-inflammatory. You want to get a lot of root vegetables, like sweet potatoes and parsnips and turnips and butternut and acorn squash and spaghetti squash. Uh, you want to make sure you're getting in bitter greens because the bitter, so Americans have like a sweet and salty palate. We don't realize bitter, which is in the front of our tongue, or is that salt? I can't remember I'm if salt remember. is in the front, bitters in the back or vice versa. But yeah, um, bitter is really important because the bitter taste stimulates the release of bile from the gallbladder and gets the digestive juices flowing and also facilitates bowel movements. So one of my treatments for constipation is to take Swedish bitters and put them on the tongue you know, 15 minutes before a meal to tell your body, okay, incoming food, let's start, you know, start turning on our engines and revving up the motor and moving things along. So bitters are really great. So things like uh, kale and collard greens and Swiss chard and broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts and artichokes, you know, those are all amazing. And, and the um, cauliflower uh, broccoli Brussels sprouts and, uh, artichokes are all in the brassica family, which again, also helps facilitate
1: the proper metabolism of estrogen. Those that's interesting too. We're going to talk more about estrogen for sure. When we talk about the Dutch chest. So it's, it's fun to hear this stuff because, um, I eat all those foods a lot, you know, and I don't have any awesome. gut issues. So you didn't mention yogurt. Is that high enough in the probiotics as like the kimchi yes. and the sauerkraut and that kind of stuff?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, you can get some really good quality yogurt with probiotics. I love Siggy's cause it's low sugar and it's higher protein. So yes, yogurt as if you tolerate dairy, you're absolutely yeah. correct. And then what should you avoid? You know, you should avoid, um, pro-inflammatory food. Oh, and I didn't mention berries. Of course, berries are a wonderful anti-inflammatory berries and cherries. Um, so what you want to avoid are high sugar, pro-inflammatory foods. Um, so just the, the processed white sugar, the breads, often gluten, gluten is an issue for a lot of people. Now it's a sensitivity for a lot of people, which is how it slips under the radar. It's not an anaphylactic reaction, but A lot of people, I believe it's because of how, um, crops are treated in this country Are sprayed with glyphosate, which is a, a very nasty pesticide. It's in Roundup, uh, which is a weed killer. So we're putting that on our food. Now, how do I know this? Because I know not only personally, but from, you know, 27 plus years in practice, I have so many of my clients who go to Europe, who eat the bread, who eat the pasta, have absolutely no issues, no weight gain, no bloat, no digestive problems. They come back here, the bloat is back, they can't tolerate it at all. So it's really how it's processed, it's genetically modified, you know, all of those things. Even organic can be problematic for some people. So mm-hmm. if you're having a lot of gut issues, I'm like, give your body a, a break from gluten and for, you know, one, three, six months, see how you do until you're healed and then try reintroducing it. The goal is not to have you never have these foods again. The goal is to heal up your gut. So you're not so inflamed. When you
1: say that roundup chemical, was it glyphosate? Yeah. It's glyphosate. I I just had a really cool guest on Carrie B and she talked about the top three toxins that she really focuses on. And that was one of them, but she didn't kind of relate how Grain products um, or gluten products outside of America may be developed and processed differently, and that people could tolerate them in other parts of the world. And they come back and they may eat, they may eat American gluten and then be exposed to those chemicals and then have that gluten intolerance. That's really interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, Europe is amazing at just they have a zero tolerance policy for pesticides on their food. That's really to- wow. that are really toxic. It's amazing. So, um, so yes, so, and you want to, you know, be very careful with booze. I mean, that's like, talk about just poking holes in your intestinal tract. Talk about
1: that. Will you really, that's a really important thing is I hear that a lot with women who, you know, they have that habit of like a drink a night and then they're, they, they stop and then they stop, they start sleeping better. Like what is the link there between booze and gut health?
0: (laughs) Well, and also people don't realize like wine is one of the most pesticide heavy foods that you're consuming, grapes are like super high with pesticides. So you can get organic wine, you can get dry farm wine, but, um, or scout and sellers, another good brand. But the problem is, is that booze, you know, it really, it, it causes a lot of inflammation in the gut. Um, it doesn't matter if it's hard alcohol or if it's wine or, you know, a white claw or whatever spike seltzer, um, all of it causes a lot of inflammation and thins out the gut wall. And especially if you're drinking on empty stomach, like that is very, very hard on the body. And what happens is, you know, your liver wants to start detoxing it. You you may have a drink at nine o'clock at night, but your detox pathways are kicking in around two or three when you're kind of in the deep healing phases of your sleep. And and then your, uh, your cortisol goes up And uh, during the detox process and you wake up, you don't get such a sound sleep or REM sleep during the process. So alcohol is really problematic. And as women go through menopause, also I find most do not tolerate caffeine well at all, and yet are having terrific insomnia due to the drop in estrogen and progesterone. So, um, I take people off caffeine and they start sleeping. The brain fog is alleviated. Their energy is much better, but you do have to be careful for sure. And I I can tell you, I have zero tolerance for caffeine and, uh, I rarely drink alcohol because it just destroys my sleep. I'm like, no, I'd rather sleep. I really would. I think that's an important
1: thing. Yeah. I always think about, you know, the freshman 15 in college and how it's just the perfect storm, like college, you're drinking more, you're not sleeping, you're stressed out, you're eating processed foods. I mean, it's like, no wonder people gain weight or, you know, motherhood. I think a lot of people come to me and they're like, I just couldn't never lose the weight after I had a baby. And it, well, it's the perfect storm for weight gain. You know, your hormones are all over the place. You're not sleeping. Carrie B kind of talked about how a lot of breastfeeding moms will just be like on their phone in the middle of the night being exposed to that blue light, uh, which impairs sleep. And then they might, maybe they're coping with some alcohol every now and then, you know, it's, and then eating kids food, it's, you can really put all of these pieces together
0: and really start to
1: understand, wow, like there are so many areas that I could optimize with my lifestyle. Um, I think that's, what's cool. That's, what's really cool about what we do. It's not like a cookie cutter approach. You know, there's a lot of different things that can be optimized. Um, I have a um, a little bit of a selfish question. I have a really close friend who, and it's he's male, and he's been struggling with IBS for at least a year. So off and on his whole life, but it's gotten really bad over the last year. And he was making he was doing like an elimination diet, and found a lot of um, nutrients that he didn't tolerate well. I don't know what his care has been. I have not asked. Um, what would you suggest for someone who really is struggling with irritable bowel syndrome on where do they start with, do they start with testing? Do they start with an elimination diet? What is your general recommendation for someone who's really struggling with IBS?
0: it depends how fast you want the process to go. If you have time to spare, absolutely start with an elimination diet where you get rid of, uh, dairy gluten soy, corn, eggs, peanuts and shrimp. Start there. That's like the classic elimination diet that eliminates the top, you know, eight allergic foods. However, you know, for every person who I see in my practice, I test. I don't guess. I'm a dietitian, not a magician. So, I uh, I just test out of the gate. No one comes yeah. to see me without their blood, stool and urine and, and hormones tested. Mm-hmm. And so, um, because you have to figure out, you know, is it a, a deficiency in digestive enzymes? Do I have a parasite? Like I would ask him, well, has he been traveling? You know, to me, IBS, by the way, is a really big umbrella diagnosis for specified. Yeah. Very unspecified, yes. uh, it, it's kind of the, the diagnosis of, I don't know what's going on, but I know your gut's inflamed. Um, yeah. not helpful. Yeah. <laughs> What direction of treatment is there other than like Miralax for some people? No, thank you. It's, you know, I always say like constipation is not a Miralax deficiency. Um, so you want to make sure that you're looking at, you know, do I have pathogens? Do I just have dysbiosis? Do I have low levels of good bacteria? And, and what is my digestive fire? Like, am I passing undigested food? Uh, am I actually absorbing my nutrients? you know, what's the problem because a gut that's not inflamed should be able to tolerate a lot of different foods. Fine. So, and this is just a sidebar. Like a lot of people spend money on expensive food allergy testing. The only yeah. thing it tells me is if you've got a leaky gut or a lot of inflammation going on, cause so they'll say, Oh my gosh, I have 30 allergies. Of course you do, because when you're eating anything and you have an inflamed gut, it it's not going to be broken down properly. And if you're just constantly exposing that substance again and again
1: to the gut wall, it's going to become sensitized to it. So you really recommend like the GI map test before a food allergy or insensitivity test. Yes. Because
0: okay. the other thing is, and Chris Cresser wrote a great blog on this. He said two. Stool samples to two different food allergy or, or blood samples, however, it was done to two different food allergy testing companies, and the results were completely different. And it was on the same day from the same samples.
1: I wonder that too, like if your stool samples would vary day to day, if you'd get different, um, and that's why you retest sometimes, I guess, to see if it's working. That's right.
0: And obviously, people, hello, if you're passing blood in your stool, like go get a colonoscopy. Don't think a GI map, a GI map can pick up, you know, microscopic blood in the stool. And I'll say to people, go get a colonoscopy. You've got something cooking or maybe you have polyps or whatever, but use common sense. This is not the end all be all. You've got to make sure you don't have anything medically going on too. But once you say, okay, I've ruled everything else out, like, yes, get the testing done for sure.
1: I feel like I have a better understanding of gut health just from the short conversation. Oh, uh, do you have any favorite resources? Like if someone really wants to learn more about gut, gut health, or if I wanted to learn more about gut health, where did you learn how to use the GI map? Any favorite books that you found helpful?
0: I really liked um, Dr. Ruscio's book. And I've listened to some of his podcasts, which are very good. Um, he does ascribe to the elemental diet, which I rarely use in practice. I do use it on some people with severe, severe digestive issues. But, um, but his book was very helpful. And again, I, I mean, I, what I, this is why I'm writing my next book on menopause, because I'm going to write all about the gut health piece. And um, what I know is not in books, in, in that many books, I've really been self studied and taught by so many amazing mentors. So it's a complicated field for sure, but I found podcasts are better than books even.
1: Yeah. Um, good. Yeah. Good one. Hopefully I like this one. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one, one reason that is, is because a lot of books have been written by men, to be honest, a lot of research has been done by men and men don't, Go through menopause, and they don't go through perimenopause. And I think that we, we're finally seeing this wave of really educated women women coming into the field and saying, "Hey, there's a big gap here of evidence based information on how to properly uh, nourish our bodies throughout this phase, and like, how does it really change the estrobiome is really fascinating. So. I think that we could keep talking about this for a long time. I'm probably going to try to get my friend to come your way. Um, <laughs> because he's suffering, you know, and it's not, it's really important to recognize. It's not just about the person it's about how is that person impacted in all of their roles? Like how is he impacted in his job at work? How is his travel ability impacted? Because I, my um, my other friend was saying people with IBS were less receptive to the COVID vaccination. You know, so for whatever reason, he's more fearful of COVID and is socially isolating more. How is that impacting his relationships? So I think it's really important to recognize that gut health can impact so many different roles and responsibilities in our life. And it can really, um, you can see the reduced quality of life for sure that these things can cause people. So I think it's great that you're as a a wonderful resource to really send people to, if it's, Hey, this is a gut issue. (laughs) I'm going to send you to Esther and and we'll get the, get to the bottom of this. So thank you. you And also
0: just people out there listening, like it's never just in your head, you're not manufacturing these symptoms. Uh, so if again, it's listen to your body, your body's talking to you, you are the most intelligent and informed person about your own body.
1: So there are answers out there for you for sure. Yep. And I think that I'd like to maybe touch on this next before we go into the Dutch test, but we talked about like what, what gets in the, in the way of people making these food changes, because a lot of times I hear people say, I don't want to be restricted. I, they kind of just want to do whatever they want and still feel and look the way they want they want to look. And it's like, well, you can't do that. You know, especially as you get into perimenopause and menopause, you have to make some lifestyle changes if you want to feel and look the way you want. So what do you think are the biggest barriers to people really taking the action that they need to take to see the results that they want to see?
0: So nature abhors a vacuum. So you can't Um, the laws of the universe dictate that you can't get what you want without giving up something else. It's just Mm. how it works, baby. It's just how it is at this point in life. So you really have to understand your why. Okay. No, I don't want to, please. I would be a smoking alcoholic if I could. I mean, I absolutely love martinis. I love catching a good buzz. You know, I I absolutely am always in a cocktail state of mind. However, I enjoy my sleep and I have a very busy practice where I need to be mentally focused and energized all day long during the day. And at night, I have to take care of my family and be on for them. So really not having energy to get through the day and work out before work and do all the things I want to do is not an option. I'm real clear on my why. So I try to get people to do the same and say, okay, we want to lose weight. Well, why do you want to lose weight? How is your life going to be different? Okay. Where do you want to be in six months? And we really try and paint a very clear picture of the end goal. And they say, oh, well, I want to, I spoke to a young woman yesterday who was having all sorts of GI complaints and was like, My husband and I are going to take a trip to Ireland in a year and I don't want to be worried about a getting on a plane overseas on a flight with an upset stomach and stomach pain and b being in the middle of nowhere with no access to a bathroom, not knowing where the ER is or how to reach a doctor. Like I want to have mental peace of mind. Great. So it's really understanding the why. And also that's another reason why I do the testing, because you can't argue with the numbers. People say, but I really like. So I have another client, Sarah, who's pre-diabetic and drinks a ton of sweet tea every day. I'm like, Sarah, honey, <sighs> and she's very overweight. She's like, but I want to lose all this weight, but I don't want to give up my tea. I'm like, well, honey, if you want to lose weight, you've got to give up the tea. I'm not saying never. I'm saying, let's do this for a while. Can you give me? Can you give me a week on this? Can you give me two weeks? Can you give me a month? And then people develop proof of concept. And they say, okay, this is how motivation works, by the way, is you take the action first and the motivation appears later. So people will say, I don't want to give up alcohol. I can't give up my coffee. No problem. So we're going to give this a month. And we're going to see how it goes. I'm going to give you a 30-day challenge. And after 30 days, they're like, wow, my sleep improved. And, oh, I finally, I went out Saturday night on day 31. I had that glass of wine. And, man, I felt so hungover and awful. I don't want to do that anymore. So they really develop um, the the tools to see what happens to, A, detach from their food attachments. Because it's really a psychological attachment. Your body doesn't care, you know, if you're having... You know wine or not harry happiness is is not only at the bottom of a wine bottle there's other ways to be happy so <laughs> so if you um you know can just detach from you know uh what you're addicted to or what your body think you need what you think your body needs in pursuit of the bigger result of losing weight, of not being bloated, of fitting in your skinny jeans, of actually feeling confident walking around naked in front of yourself and your partner, um, of being intimate with the lights on, of not shying away of social situations, not shying away of having your picture taken, um, being able to shop and get what you want. I mean, these are all concerns that I hear all day long, every day, I'm no different than you. I want those same results too. So I know... That when you put in the work and when I put in the work too, you just feel better about yourself. And then you feel more confident and that confidence
1: reinforces the motivation of your why. I think that's a beautiful way to say it, that the motivation doesn't come first. You know, the action comes first and the motivation follows it. And you're so spot on when you when you say people, um, they don't want to give something up. I'm like, you don't have to give it up you know, but can we significantly reduce it to like once a week, or like you said, a 30 day challenge, you know, and see how you feel. And I, I focus a lot on sugar. Cause I focus a lot on insulin resistance and added sugar turnkey, you know, way to get uh, diabetes and insulin resistance. And so, you know, they say, Oh my gosh, I had this and I felt so terrible after, after they kind of clean up their diet a bit and then they have it. And then they're like, I don't even like that anymore. Or I didn't even want that anymore. So I think it's really cool to see. Yeah. Like you just have to commit to it. Um, or I love how you said it's psychological. Like your body doesn't know. I love half and half in my coffee. (laughs) I love it so much, but when I'm trying to do a clean fast, I have given it up and it's okay. It's like, you know what, this is just like, almost like one thing that I'm holding on to is my half and half in my coffee. And it's like, as you said, my body doesn't care. It's all yeah. psychological, so I, I think that that was a really good point. And um, keeping your eye on your why is like the first thing that I start with with everyone because <laughs> restriction is going to come either way. I say you you either need to restrict yourself from instant gratification now, or you can have the restriction of what clothes you wear and how mobile you are and how independent you are in 30 years. You get to pick when you are restricted. Like, is it going to be a self imposed restriction now? or, um, um, obligatory restriction later. And I think I just have such a clear picture of that as a geriatric PT, you know, like really it's terrorist. It's really sad. You know, <laughs> it's like last night I was um, speaking with my husband right before bed. And I'm like, I don't want to talk about it, but today was a really sad day. Like just having to evaluate two people mm-hmm. with like, end stage end stage Alzheimer's disease is really, really terrible. You know, it's really terrible and sad. And so it's like, there's no better motivator than seeing that and then wanting to take action now, no matter how hard it is. And so I think that's something else to really point out to people that, you know, Esther said three to six months minimum to really see these changes. And I think that that is a huge problem with weight loss and diet culture is the the marketing of instant results and instant gratification. And it's like, this stuff is this is a lifelong um, journey. You don't just get to go on a diet and then go off the diet. You have to change your lifestyle if you want these lifelong results. So,
0: and it doesn't—it doesn't have to be yeah. perfect to get results doesn't. either. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I still do have clients that drink alcohol and still lose weight, but they're really watching every other piece in their life, and they're on very low carbs, and they're working out a lot. So. You have to figure out, okay, you know, the other way to look at it is this, because if, if the first part of the conversation felt very restrictive to you and uncomfortable, we're like, I, I just can't do that. I'm shutting down out of the gate. Yep. Okay. Then think of it this way. You give yourself three non-negotiables, right? Where are the three things I'm not going to give up half and half in your coffee or just, you know, a glass of wine once a week or chocolate, whatever it is. Chocolate chip cookies for me. Chocolate chip cookies. I'm not giving them up not yeah, giving at least up. not right no. now. No, <laughs> and I will not give up chocolate or martinis, but I have about two martinis a year. <laughs> and just knowing I can have it if I want to is half the battle and same yeah. with the chocolate. And then the portion sizes, right? If I have chocolate, it's like one piece, one square. And again, I don't have it every night because so I don't really need it or feel better on it. It's just, it's, it tastes good, yep. but, um, But, you know, you really have to think about your non-negotiables, but then everything else, you know, you're, you're tight with, or you build in indulgences and say, fine, I know I I have dinner outside at night, it's date night. I'm going to have a glass of wine
1: or a dessert, but not both. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to become more, a little bit more restrictive going through perimenopause and menopause. And I know that that's not what people want to hear, but I do think the more I talk with people like yourself, the more it's, I realize it's kind of true. You know, I'm 31 right now. I can get away with quite a bit because I'm young, I'm active, and I have a lot of I have estrogen. (laughs) Um, but as I (laughs) age, (laughs) I think maybe that's why I wanted to keep my half and half. But as I age, (laughs) I know that I'm gonna have to tighten a few things up. Um, and I think it's really important that um we are sustainable as we go, you know. So really keeping that long-term picture in mind and not going on like this crash diet, but as we've talked about, like pick a few things and try to optimize it. Um, but I think knowledge is power and just knowing how alcohol affects the gut, knowing how processed food affects the gut, knowing, knowing those things should motivate you to want to take action. Um, I don't know. I think that we had intended to talk about the Dutch chest today, um, and, and hormones. And I'm going to ask you if you'd be willing to come back for a part two so that we could dive into that. I would love
0: that. That would be amazing.
1: Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. I had a feeling that you'd say that that's why I didn't kind of <laughs> cut this out. I'm like, I think this will just do it live little improv. Um, so I think that'll be great. If we can schedule another podcast interview, we'll call this one part two for really gut health. Um, and optimizing that microbiome. And then we'll come back and do another interview that talks about the Dutch test. I've been wanting to talk about this on the podcast. I think you're really, um, skilled just from this conversation, skilled clinician, um, who can really break the information down for our listeners. And for those who don't know, can you give them a little preview about what the Dutch test is that we'll be talking about in part two, the
0: Dutch test is going to tell you, um, your production and detox pathways of hormones. And it looks at their metabolites and it tells me, you know, um, how you're processing. Well, as I said, your, your production and your, and your pathways. Um, it also looks at the neurotransmitters in your brain. I do the Dutch complete. So that is fascinating in and of itself, because as I mentioned, like as your gut changes, right, your Small intestine is where you manufacture about 90% of your serotonin and dopamine. So if, you're, if we fix your gut and the inflammation in your gut, we're gonna fix your brain. Um, but the nice thing is the Dutch and the GI map speak to each other. So, um, you know, having those two tests in conjunction with each other is great, A, and B, sorry, I'm getting a little off track, circling back to the neurotransmitter piece, You know, that also is going to tell me, um, how, whether you're a candidate for nutrients that are precursors to serotonin and dopamine, um, perhaps you may not need that antidepressant because it's not really working anyway. I see plenty of people on antidepressants who have still have very low serotonin and dopamine. So it can tell me, do you need to be complex? Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, so do you need to be complex? You know, are you deficient in nutrients? Do you need to eat more cruciferous vegetables? Do you need to eat more fiber in your diet? Um, So again, it's a real North star. And then if uh, it will also tell me if you're a candidate for hormone replacement therapy, where we start, what dosages, Uh, it tells me a lot about your adrenal function too and your cortisol, your morning and your metabolized cortisol. So it's a great
1: overall window. Yeah, I'm excited. I've looked into it a little bit. I, again, just like the GI map, I've never used it in practice. I don't know how to use it. So I'm looking forward to learning a lot from you in our next interview. And we'll talk again soon.
0: Thanks. Thanks Esther.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening to the reshape your health podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave a rating and review, and don't forget to tell a friend to learn more and connect online. Check out the links in the show notes.